0: Glad you're here tonight as we uh, take step number three in our Pilgrim's Progress, or the the Pilgrim's Staircase. We're looking at uh, 15 of the Psalms that are called Psalms of the Ascent. And we've suggested to you that that word ascent in the Hebrew language means the same thing it does in the English language. It means to go up higher. And so these are 15 Psalms designed to help us go up higher. And in the original context, they were designed for people who were going up higher to the temple, to visit the temple. And uh, we're not certain exactly how they were used, but it seems that they were used by uh, those returning from Exile in Babylon as they made their way back to their home, back to Jerusalem. Uh, but it also probably was used in the, in the most, uh, I guess the, the, the widest use of these Psalms of Ascent would have been those pilgrims who went up to the temple three times a year for the feast days, Passover and Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And today we come to the third, which is Psalm 122. So if you'll have your Bible open there, we've considered Psalm 120, and we've said that that was the first step, uh, and it was the step of distress. And there the psalmist is crying out to the Lord in distress. And the suggestion uh, was, well, not a suggestion, uh, the the truth of that psalm is that we can't go any higher until we go through that step of distress where we become distressed over our spiritual lost condition and we cry out to God. In the case of the Hebrews, they were distressed because of their captivity and because of all that had happened to them as a nation as punishment for their sin. And so it's a, it was a cry or a step Of distress, and then last week in Psalm 121, we took the second step. And we remember we said that one usage of this, these Psalms of ascent, probably was going up the fifteen steps that led into the temple, and so they would when they would get on each step they would sing one of these Psalms, and the second one was the Psalm of Deliverance. After we come to that step of despair, the next step is a step of deliverance where God delivers us, God saves us, to put it in New Testament terms. Now, tonight we're coming to step number three, and that is Psalm 122. And you'll notice that it is a little bit different in its introduction or in its uh, Uh, In describing the psalm it says a song of ascent and if yours is like mine it says of David. Does yours have that? It's a psalm of ascent of David. Now there are 15 of these psalms, 10 of them are anonymous. That is we don't know for sure who wrote them. I've shared with you the last two weeks that my humble opinion which I highly regard is, uh, is that uh, they were written by Hezekiah. Uh, the context of each of these psalms just fits the situation in which King Hezekiah found himself um, as the Assyrian army was gathering to besiege the city of Jerusalem. But tonight it's quite clear that we do know who wrote this one. It's a psalm of David. Now there are four of the 15 psalms that were written by David, and one that was written by Solomon. And we'll talk about that when we get to that psalm. But let me just, by way of introduction, say that there are uh, some contemporary scholars today who doubt the authorship of this psalm being David. And the reason they do that is because of the very first verse in this psalm. I was glad when they said unto me, let us what? Go into the what? House of the Lord. Well obviously that is a reference to the temple. And uh, if you know your biblical chronology you know that while David desired to build the temple he was not allowed to build the temple. That it was Solomon, his son, who later was able to build the temple. Now David uh, gathered all the materials and had everything ready for Solomon, but it was Solomon who actually constructed, or under his, under his monarchy, uh, the temple was built. But I think that does not negate David being the author. Because David was not only a king, David was a prophet. And uh, men like my hero, Charles Spurgeon, in the past... And many contemporary heroes, uh, many contemporary scholars, also believe that David was speaking prophetically here, that he understood that the temple would be built, and the things that he's saying about the temple will certainly come to pass. So, uh, my 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 opinion, and my well, not again, why I'm using that word opinion tonight? My conviction is that it is a psalm. Written by by David. Now, how many of you have ever been to Jerusalem? It, it, have you been? Any Any of you here got to go? I hope so. I hope you'll get to go someday. It is a it's an amazing experience. Uh, I remember the first time I went. They take you into the into the Holy Land, and you spend several days in Capernaum and, and visiting Joppa and and going down to the different places. And it's almost like the whole week the tension is building because you haven't been to Jerusalem yet. And everybody knows that's where you want to get to. All these other things are important, but Jerusalem is the heartbeat of the Holy Land. It's the the city where God chose to place His name. As you read through the Old Testament, God says He put His name in Jerusalem. It was the place where God chose to manifest His presence through the Shekinah glory cloud and build the temple where He would dwell among His people. So Jerusalem is an amazing place. And so we, I remember the day that we, we were going, finally heading toward Jerusalem. And everywhere you go toward Jerusalem in the Holy Land, you're going up. You're ascending like the Psalms of Ascent. You're ascending up the mountains. And, and the, the guide is kind of preparing you, you know, for when you get to Jerusalem. And finally you you turned the corner and there it is. You've seen it in pictures all of your life. And there it is. The golden dome of the Mosque of the Rock glistening in the sun. And you just, it just almost takes your breath away. Even somebody like us, you know, a, a Gentile. And can you imagine how these, how these pilgrims felt Now many of these pilgrims lived in small, unwalled villages. They had never been to a city. And for them to come, it wasn't the golden uh, dome of the the Muslim uh, (laughs) worship place like it is today, but it was the temple itself. And when they would see that, and so that's what I, what I want you to kind of hold in your heart. That's kind of the context for all of these psalms. They're, many of them are seeing Jerusalem. They've heard of it. They've prayed for it. And they've longed to see it. And now they are there. Now, uh, I remember as a, as a child we used to sing an old hymn. I think many of you will identify with this. I'm pressing on the upward way. You remember that one? New heights I'm gaining every day. That's what these Psalms are teaching us. I'm pressing on the upward way. Now we need to understand we cannot ascend these steps in our own effort. And please don't hear me to be saying that we can do that. All of this assumes the presence of God in our life and the strength of God to implement these steps. God helps us by His grace to take these steps. We don't take them in our own power. Now um, I want to walk you through this psalm and I'm going to use a very simple outline tonight. There's six points of, of interpretation or, uh, uh, or emphases that, that I want to make as we talk about the house of the Lord. Now let's begin, now let me pray and then let me read the psalm, okay? Now Father, I pray right now as we, as we still our hearts before you that you would be our teacher tonight. Lord, as you inspired David to write this psalm, I pray that you would illuminate our heart and mind to understand it. And You'll give us the grace and strength and even the desire to apply it to our life. Now Father open Your Word to us. Help us as the psalmist prayed to behold wondrous things from Thy law tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm reading from the New American Standard tonight, Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I was glad When they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together. To which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord. An ordinance for Israel. For their thrones were set for judgment the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. May God, the Holy Spirit, uh, speak to our heart through this passage of Scripture. Well, I want us to begin by the point number one, the house of the Lord. The first thing I want you to see tonight is that it is a house of pleasure. It is a house of pleasure. Notice what he says in that first verse. I was what, church? I was glad. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Now that word glad, it's the Hebrew word samach. It is an interesting word. It It usually refers, listen to this, to a spontaneous emotion or extreme happiness which is expressed in some visible or external manner. Does that describe your worship? (laughs) Is your worship marked by extreme happiness, by spontaneous emotion? You see, it doesn't normally, this word doesn't normally represent an abiding state of well-being or feeling. That's not what he's talking about. This emotion uh, Vine says in his word study, this emotion arises at festivals, circumcision feast, wedding feast, harvest feast, or the overthrow of one's enemies or such events. The emotion expressed in the verb samach usually finds visible expression. Now, how does that relate to our worship? He said, I was samach. When they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I was was moved in my heart. I was excited. It stirred my soul. I I was as excited as when I defeated my enemies. Now, what he's he's explaining here is a very pleasurable experience. He's, He's expressing something that greatly blessed his life. Now, in other words, they were finding pleasure in going to church. They were finding pleasure in going to the house of the Lord. Now, I want you to turn to a passage with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. You there? Now, notice what the writer of Hebrews says. "...not forsaking the assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Now, the writer of Hebrews says that obviously there were some believers who were saturating the church with their absence. They were not showing up. They were professing believers, but they weren't showing up for corporate worship. Now, let me give you a little preview of next week. Next week, the step is going to continue to be the step of delight. The next Psalm, Psalm 123, is also the step of delight, part two. But here's the difference. This week, we're talking about corporate worship. Next week, Psalm 123 is talking about private worship. But tonight we're talking about the importance of corporate worship. I was glad when they said unto me, let what? Is that singular or plural? Obviously. Let us go into the house of the Lord. Notice, notice the, the next verse. Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates. You see, this is a corporate thing. He says... There is pleasure in God's people meeting together. Now, again, you folks on Wednesday night, that's an old truth to you. You know that. I mean, you wouldn't be here on Wednesday night studying the Bible if you didn't believe that. But how many Baptists are there that you know and I know who don't agree with that? who don't believe that going to church is a wonderful, pleasurable experience, who who have never come to the point in their life, they've never taken that step of delight. They're still on the step of deliverance. They've been saved, but they've never entered into the joy of what it means to worship together. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because we need to encourage one another. Church attendance is important. Amen? I mean, it is. It's important. It's important for what you gain out of it. And it's also important because of your witness and your testimony. I have to admit that there are times when I didn't want to get up and go to church. Now, I know I'm just being honest. I'm a preacher. I mean, that's never supposed to be the way I feel. You know you, you know the story about the mother that went in to wake up her son said, son, get up, it's time for church. He said, mama, I'm not going today. Yes, son, you got to go to church today. He said, give me three reasons why. She said, well, number one, the Bible teaches it. Number two, you need it. And number three, you're the pastor of the church, and you need to get up and go to church. <laughs> I, 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 can, I understand. There have been some Sundays when you know, the old devil say, you know, you've got to say something and you don't have anything to say. You ever been there? God, God grows us, doesn't He? Uh, I, 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 somebody, I, I read this not too long ago. Someone parroted many of the excuses we have about not coming to church, and they—it's a similar list of excuses that people could give for not washing their hands. Now, just listen to this. These are some of the excuses you might give for not washing your hands, and see if they sound familiar to people who give excuses for not coming to church, okay? Number one, I was forced to wash as a child. So I'm not going to wash my hands anymore. You ever heard that? I was forced to go to church when I was a child. Number two, people who wash are hypocrites. They think they're cleaner than everybody else. Number three, there are so many kinds of soap, I could never decide which one was right. I used to wash, (laughs) but it got boring. I wash only on Christmas or Easter. None of my friends wash. I'll start washing when I'm older. I really don't have time to wash. The bathroom isn't warm enough. And people who make soap are only after your money. You ever heard any of those excuses? You ever used any of those excuses? Ann Landers shared this little piece in her column. You know that great theologian, Ann Landers. She said, uh, in order to make it possible for everyone to attend church next week, we're planning a special no excuse Sunday. And here it is. Number one, in order to make it possible for everyone to attend church next week, we're planning a no excuse Sunday. Cots will be placed in the vestibule in the vestibule for those who say Sunday is my only day for sleeping in. Eye drops will be available for those whose eyes are tired from watching TV too late on Saturday night. We will have steel helmets for those who believe that the roof will cave in if they show up for church service. Blankets will be furnished for those who complain that the church is too cold. And fans will be on hand for those who say it's too hot. We'll have hearing aids for the parishioner who say the pastor doesn't talk loud enough. And there will be cotton balls for those who say he talks too loud. Scorecards are available for those who like to count the hypocrites that are attending. Well, I could go on. Hit my last one. This is a good one. Oh, this fits Baptist. The sanctuary will be decorated with Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies to create a familiar environment for those who have never seen the church without them. Well, anyway, he's saying going to church, corporate worship, should be a a glad time. It's a pleasurable experience. Now, I, I, I just would throw out the question. Is that your heartbeat about coming to the point? Is it something you look forward to? Is it something you're glad you get the opportunity to do that? Well, here's the second thing. Not only is the house of God a place of pleasure, but the the psalmist here is saying that the house of the Lord is a place of privilege. Let's look at verse 2. Turn back to verse 2 here. He says, Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So see, they've gotten there. They're there. And not only are they there, they've stepped inside the gates. Here are these pilgrims. They've been coming up the hill. Uh, They've uh, they've stepped inside the gates and and they're, they're gazing on the city. And remember now, most of these rural people, some of them never seen a walled city before. Now, what I want you to see about this particular point is that it is a, the house of the Lord is a place of, a place of privilege. It's a place of great privilege. Now, they were absolutely amazed that they had the privilege to stand and gaze upon the temple. It was something They had dreamed about something they had longed to do. And they appreciated the privilege of coming to the house of God. You know, that's a mindset that we all need to be aware of and adopt. We sometimes take for granted what we're doing right now. We take for granted that we can meet together corporately. We take for granted that the church is going to be open on Sunday morning and there's not going to be somebody standing at the door with a machine gun not letting you get in. There's not going to be somebody on the roof that's going to tear down the crosses like they're doing in India right now. You know, when I go to India and those young men, some of them ride a train for four and five days and nights to get to the Bible conference where I am teaching. And when they get there, they're, they're so, they feel so privileged that they get to hear the Word of God. And we who live with three or four Bibles in every home, and yet we, we lose the wonder of what, how privileged we are. I, um, I want to ask you, do you thank God I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you thank God, that there is a place like the point where you can come and sit under the Word of God? You know, I've, I've heard so many wonderful things about your former pastor, about Brother Wade. I've heard so many wonderful things about the fact that he was a preacher of the Word of God. Folks, that's not true in every church in America. It's not. Do you know how rare it is? And and so you are privileged here at the point. Now, I don't know. I know if God wanted another brother Wade Humphreys, He'd have kept him here. So your your next pastor will not be Wade Humphreys. He'll have a different set of personality and gifts package. But I'm sure knowing the pastor search team that you put together, I'm sure of one thing, they won't bring a man here who doesn't love and preach the Word of God. And and see, that's such an incredible privilege. Somebody that doesn't give a book review on the book of the month or the book of the year, but he always holds up the book of the ages and tries to preach what thus saith the Lord. And that's a privilege to get to hear the Word of God. And so that's what these these guys they were so privileged that they were standing not on the steps anymore but they moved inside. The temple is in sight. And they felt so privileged that they were having an opportunity to enter into fellowship and worship of God. Well here's the third thing. Uh, Look at verses 3 and 8. He says, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together. Now that word compact is an interesting word. It refers to the, to the fact that, that Jerusalem at that time was not a large, sprawling city. During David's time, if you go, to, if you go uh, ever get to go to Jerusalem, <coughs> they'll show you what's called the old city, and then they'll show you the new city. And the old city of Jerusalem was really very small. It was compact. But, but the houses were built on the wall, and they were built close together. We would call them uh, not zero lot lines, but when they're attached, they were what we would call apartments today. And and so many of these people had never seen that. So he's talking about what they're seeing. They're seeing a a compact city. Uh, And then he he goes on to say in verse 8, for the sake of my brothers and my family, I will now say, may peace be within you. Now, Again, I remind you that this is a place of partnership. That's the third P here, is that the house of the Lord was a place of partnership. Again, he says, let us go into the house of the Lord. You see, he didn't believe in Lone Ranger Christianity. I've run, a few, I've run into a few Lone Ranger Christians in my day. And they usually tell you something like this, well, yeah, I believe in Christ, but I don't care anything for the church. You ever heard anybody say that? I've heard a lot of times. You go visit them, invite them to church, well, no, I'm not interested in the church. I, I, I believe in Christ. But I, I, can, I can worship God just as well out on the golf course. <laughs> I've played enough golf, I don't believe that. Most of the guys I play with are not worshiping. I can be just as near to God out on the lake. You see, what they're saying is, I don't need other Christians. I can go it alone. Now, let me just say, and we'll talk about it next week, sure, you can worship God out on the lake. And yes, I have to say, I've had moments of worship on a golf course. I really have. But you see, the Lord says we're not to forsake God. The assembling of ourselves together, and that we're to engage in partnership with God's people. Uh, hey, look at the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord pr- Lord's Prayer begin? Somebody tell me. Huh? What's that first word? You mean it doesn't say, My Father which art in heaven? It doesn't, does it? It says, Our Father. You see, the Lord's Prayer can't be prayed as a Lone Ranger Christian. If you're not in fellowship with God's people, if you're not partnering with God's people to carry out the will of God, you can't rightfully pray the Lord's Prayer because you have to pray the Lord's Prayer in concert with God's people. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So uh, as these uh, Christians come and they see the compactness of, of the city. Now, I'm going to give you a quote from uh, Josephus, who was a historian about the time the New Testament was being written. Uh, let me give you this quote. Josephus says it means "quote one and entire." This is the word "compact." Now, here's what it means: It means one and entire, no straggling suburbs, shut in on the north by a wall, and on three other sides by walls and by deep rocky valleys. But the material compactness was perhaps taken to symbolize the close internal union of the inhabitants one with another, whereby they were all knit together into one church and people. You see, the word compact here, while it referred to the compactness of the city, its subsidiary meaning or secondary meaning to the pilgrims was it it it, it symbolized the compactness and the closeness of the fellowship in Jerusalem. So it it spoke of the partnership and of the unity of the people of God. In fact, the word, the word translated "compact" here has another, uh, uh, can be used and is used in some verses to be translated to have fellowship with. And so this word is talking about being partners together in the Lord, of having fellowship with one another. It's a place where God's people can meet together for worship and encouragement, for spiritual growth, and for learning. Now, know know this. He's not talking about coffee and donut fellowship. Now, I love our coffee bar. I'm the first one to tell you, I love it. But, friends, if your fellowship never gets any deeper than drinking a cup of coffee together, we've missed the meaning of the word fellowship. Fellowship is more than sharing a cup of coffee. Fellowship is sharing life together. It is entering and engaging in a partnership together. Uh, You know, too often when we, as Baptists, we use the word fellowship. You know, we're we're thinking about uh, something that has chicken in it. You know, (laughs) You heard the story about the three kids were in, the, in the school and the teacher said, I want you to bring something that symbolizes your religion. And the, the little Jewish boy brought a star of David. The little Catholic boy brought a crucifix. And a little Baptist boy brought a chicken casserole. So we, we, we look at fellowship in a kind of a light way. But fellowship in the Bible means sharing life together. It's entering into into partnership together. And, and, And I'm convinced that there are many people in Hernando and DeSoto County that are hungering for that. They don't even know it. But they're hungering for that depth of fellowship where they can share life, where they can share friendship. How many of you remember the old TV series, Cheers? You remember that? I know you don't want to admit you watched it some, but I got my hand up too. Uh, You know, it was interesting. Did you ever pay attention to the theme song, the Cheers? Listen, Listen to it, listen to it. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries, it sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You want to be where somebody, where everybody knows your name. You want to go where people know the people are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. You see, what people are longing for and looking for, a lot of them are lined up at bar stools all over this county and all over Memphis, Tennessee. They're longing for relationships. They're longing for partnership. They're longing for reality. And they're finding surface stuff, and they're drowning what the, the, their appetite with drink and drugs. But you know, if we can show them and model for them the real thing, if we can model for them what it really means to be the church, and to love each other, and to forgive each other, and to help each other, then I think that's an attractive thing that that people are hungry for, if we can just show them the real thing. I I like the way David expresses it. In Psalm 119.63, listen to what he says, I am a companion of all of them that fear the Lord. Boy, that's a good company, isn't it? I am a companion of all of them that fear the Lord. That's the kind of folks I want to hang around with. I want to hang around folks that make me better. I want to hang around folks that make me hunger and thirst for a closer relationship to God. And David said, "I, I, I want to hang with those that fear the Lord. That's who I want to be my best friend. That's who I want to be my heroes. That's who I want to be those that I want to live like. I know we don't have teenagers in here tonight, but you can tell your grandchild or or your child, this is a great truth for them. Uh, Scripture says, evil companions corrupt even the best testimony. It's important who we hang with, isn't it? Amen. Now here's the fourth thing. The house of the Lord is not only a place of of pleasure and privilege and partnership, but it's a place of praise. Look at verse 4. He says, uh, to which the tribes go up. Talking about the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes. Now remember that David is writing this. And when David wrote it, the 12 tribes were unified. It's before the ten tribes went north, formed Israel, and the two tribes stayed south and formed Judah. So he's talking about all the tribes here, and he's saying to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say the tribes of Israel, but they're really the tribes that belong to the Lord. And then he says, an ordinance for Israel. That word ordinance means commandment. In other words, their going up was a privilege, it was a pleasure, it was a partnership, but it was also a command. You see, they went up because God had laid it out in His Word that three times a year they were to go up. And so they were going up. Not just seeking pleasure, but they were going up out of obedience to the Lord. So here's the thing. There are times when we may come to church just out of sheer obedience. You know, we may have an excedrin number 22 <laughs> headache. Or, you know, we, we, we may have had a rough week at work. Uh, uh, you know, we may have had uh, a lot of stress in our life and, and the temptation is just to stay at home, you know. I'm just going to stay at home and you know, watch Joel. <laughs> he'll he'll give me something good, you know. He won't put me on a guilt trip. He won't even mention sin. I'll just watch Joel today. No, I'm kidding. But I mean, there are times when you don't feel like going. And when we don't feel like going, this is where this kicks in. We're to be obedient to God, we're to go. We're to go to church. He doesn't say, if you want to, He says forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. So it's God's will for us to be together in corporate worship. Now this is, verse 4 says to give thanks to the name of the Lord. So here's where we get our fourth word. The house of the Lord is to be a place of praise. It's a place of partnership, but in verse 4, I remind you that it was a place of praise as well. He says he says that they are to uh, give thanks to the name of the Lord. A place of praise. A place of praise. And he uses the word testimony here. Uh, he's speaking specifically... Of the Ark of the Testimony, he he. It's uh, the old tabernacle. Remember, had been in in Gibeon, and David had transferred it from Gibeon to Jerusalem and established the uh, the uh, the tabernacle there and the, and the Ark of the Covenant there in Jerusalem. And remember, he was so happy when he came in. He came in dancing, and you remember his wife didn't like that at all. You know, she she reprimanded him for dancing in front of the Ark, but. Uh, but David was, his heart was filled with praise. And, and, and uh, so I think a verse that, that really captures this is Psalm 22, verse 3. You might make you a note out there. Let me quote it for you. The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Now think about that. The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Now, what does that mean for us? It means if we want God to show up, then we are to praise him. Because wherever his people are praising him, he shows up. So it is a place of praise. It is a place of praise. It's a, another way of saying that, it's a place where true worship takes place. True worship. Now let me give you a couple of definitions of, of worship. One of them is from Louis Giglio. Uh, you may have never heard that name. I promise you our, most of our teenagers have heard that name. He a, speaks a lot to, uh, in, in young people's rallies, teenagers and early 20s. But this is his definition of worship. Worship is our response both personal and corporate to God for who he is for what He has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. So you see, worship is just not something we do on Sunday. Worship is something we do throughout the week by what we say and by how we live. And if we're not worshiping Monday through Saturday, it is doubtful that we're going to worship with any depth of meaning on Sunday. Now, during World War II, William Temple was the Archbishop of Canterbury in London and in a radio address to the people of England he he made this statement. He says the world can be saved this is right in the middle of World War II when London was being bombed to smithereens. He said the world can be saved from political chaos and collapse by one thing only and that is worship. Wow think about that. Now you say, well Brother Tommy that sounds preposterous to me. How can the world be saved by worship? Well to understand what he means by that let me give you his definition of worship, okay? This is uh, William Temple's definition of worship. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. To devote the will to the purpose of God. And if that is what worship really is, perhaps the archbishop was correct. Only worship can save us. So, that's why the church should be a house of praise. Now we come to number five. The house of the Lord, number five, should be a place of peace. Look at verses 5 through 7. For there thrones were set for judgment. Now, let me, let me comment on that. It, it's kind of, what, what does he mean, thrones are set for judgment? How is he saying that in the context of judgment, uh, of, of worship? Well, do you remember in the Old Testament where most of the business of the city or the village, was conducted. Remember where? The gates. The gates. Remember when uh, Absalom was trying to overthrow David? Where did he do, do his dirtiest work of turning the people's hearts against David? At the gates. So the gates were an important place where problems were solved and judgments were rendered. So when He says here that um, for the thrones were set for judgment, what he, He's really saying is the thrones are there. And when the people would come through the gates as they already have, says in verse 2, our feet are standing within the gates. When they stepped through the gates, they would have seen the seats or the thrones where the king would sit and solve problems, basically. He would sit in judgment. And he would make judgments as to what was right in certain individual cases. And so basically what he's saying here is that that it's a a matter of problem solving. And so he he says uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So here's number five. The house of the Lord is a place of prayer. It is a place of prayer. Another way of saying that is a place of peace. Prayer and peace are Siamese twins. It is a place of prayer, it is a place of peace. He's saying, pray for Jerusalem. Do you see that? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now we said in the beginning, and I, I'm closing this out, I'm going too long, but uh, Uh, that David is speaking prophetically. David, I think, understood what what was hanging over Jerusalem. You'll remember that Jerusalem had anything but peace, and has had anything but peace throughout her history. They were attacked by Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, and then conquered by Rome. They've known very little peace in their history. And so David is saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And he says that the path to peace is ultimately going to be, verse 6, may they prosper who love you. He says the path of peace is a path of love. He said you're going to have to learn how to love. How to love. Uh, Now Unfortunately, that's missing today in many of our churches. uh, It's sad to see how many churches are in royal battles with each other. And when you have a precious fellowship where there's unity and peace, don't ever take it for granted. Some of us have been through some situations, you know what that means. And it's not pleasant. And, and part of it is because sometimes we have the attitude of what's in it for me and pushing my agenda rather than seeking the will of God. Well, let me give you one more and I'll, I'll finish up here. I've already gone too far. Verses 6 and 7, uh, verse, uh, verse 7 and 8. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. You see in in verse 6 he uses may they prosper who love you. Verse 7, prosperity be within your palaces. The last thing I'd say is the house of the Lord is to be a place of prosperity. A place of prosperity. Now let me just be quick to say he's not talking about material prosperity here. God may be pleased to prosper you materially and if he is, thank God. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about prospering us spiritually, that we would prosper in our relationship with God. The word here uh, to prosper is translated by Daniel in Daniel four twenty-seven as tranquility. It's translated by Job in chapter three verse twenty-six as safety, and it's translated again by Job in in Job twenty twenty as an inner quietness. So that word prosperous means to have an inner quietness, to be safe and to be tranquil. That's real prosperity. When you have safety, tranquility, and you have an inner peace and quietness about you. Those are things that money can't buy. Those are invaluable. And when you have those things, you are exceedingly prosperous. And if you don't have those things, regardless of how many millions you have, you're not prosperous. Well, let me close this thing out. Let me give an application and we're through the church is our Jerusalem. What, what Jerusalem was to ancient Israel, the church is for us today. Hebrews 12, through 24, I won't take the time to read it, but if you'll mark that, it, it compares the church to the, to the old Jerusalem. He says um, um, that there are several parallels between Jerusalem and the church. Jerusalem was a place to bring together the different tribes into a unified nation, and the church is to bring together God's people in unity. Uh, Jerusalem was a place where justice was provided. The church is a place where you and I find justice through Jesus Christ. We are justified, not by our own works, but by the finished work of Calvary. And just as the pilgrims anticipated their entrance to Jerusalem, This is good. Listen to this. I'm closing. So we who know the Lord should anticipate our entrance into the new Jerusalem. Amen? Amen. We anticipate our entrance into the new Jerusalem. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. Well, how'd you do? (laughs) How'd you do? Is church delightful to you? The scripture encourages us to love the church. Christ loved it enough that he gave his life for it. So we ought to love it. Piper put it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When I am satisfied in God, He is glorified in me.